It's time for our reading this evening. And uh, the reading tonight comes from the book of Acts, as they all have this week. And it comes from chapter 18. And we pick up Paul's story. And we're going to do this reading in a different way for you tonight, give you a chance to think about some of the things that Tony Campolo is going to speak to us about in the moments to come. And I think you'll agree, just the atmosphere in this tent this evening already, there is a sense that God is already here. And I don't know about you, but I am really looking forward to seeing what he wants to do next and hearing what he wants to say to us by his spirit. So this is the word of the Lord in the book of Acts, chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What would the Greeks make of Jesus? Paul told them Jesus was the Christ. Peter had reached the same conclusion. You're the Christ, the Son of God. But some Jews had other ideas, depending on how they'd encountered him. A carpenter's boy to the Nazarene locals, a child prodigy to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, a local celebrity to the Galilean tourist board, an escapologist to the Nazareth lynch mob, a productivity guru to a local fisherman's co-op, an exorcist to the hooligan formerly known as Legion, a political liberator to kick out the Romans, a revolutionary in the wings to Barabbas and mates, the one to John Baptizer's fan club, a nutter to his own family, demonic to the Pharisees, new life to the widow's ex-dead son, new life to Jairus' daughter, a spiritual healer, a reluctant star, a PR consultant's nightmare, an expert dermatologist, a dangerous, subversive, a party animal, a drunkard, a private life coach, a pro-foreigner, anti-Jew heretic, a feminist visionary, a master storyteller, a heaven on earth tour guide, a one-man catering crew, sight to some, music to the ears of others, a reincarnated John Baptizer, Elijah revisiting planet earth, Jeremiah back from heaven, the Christ, God's son to Peter, the Christ, God's son to Paul. What did the Jews make of Jesus? Having devoted himself exclusively to them. The Jews opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in process and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What would the Greeks make of Jesus? What have we made of Jesus? Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and the entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. What would the Greeks make of Jesus? What have we made of Jesus? 
One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. What would the Greeks make of Jesus? What have we made of Jesus? While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected. Then they all turned to Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. What would the Greeks make of Jesus? What have we made of Jesus? It's a huge. Father, we thank you for this man. And we thank you for what you have done in his life. And we thank you for what you are doing in his life. And we thank you for all the miracles you have yet to perform through this life. And we pray tonight as he speaks that we would hear you, that our hearts would be open and our lives would be available to wherever your spirit leads. This night we pray. Amen. You heard the scripture tonight. You heard how Paul went to the Jews and they rejected Paul because they didn't like the Jesus that he told them about. They wanted a different kind of Jesus. They rejected the Jesus that is revealed in scripture. They rejected the Jesus that came 2,000 years ago and is with us tonight. They wanted a different kind of Jesus. I contend that every generation is made up of people who get rid of the biblical Jesus and try to create a new one in his place. Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of my field, I'm a sociologist by trade, said that a group of people over a given period of time develop certain traits and values. Then they usually come up with an animal to symbolize those traits and values. Such an animal is called a totem from whence we get the word totem pole. Strong as an ox, wise as an owl, sly as a fax, swift as a deer, animals symbolizing the traits and the values of the tribe. Then, of course, they begin to worship the animal. Now Emil Durkheim raises the question, if people are worshiping a deity that is nothing more than a symbolic representation of their own traits and values, when they worship that deity, what are they really worshiping? And he answers, it is the group worshipping itself. You say, so much for primitive people who worship totems. We're sophisticated Brits. We worship the Jesus of the scripture. Do you? Do you really? 
because we have a tendency to transform Jesus into the likeness of ourselves. George Bernard Shaw said it this way, God created us in his image and we decided to return the favor. Let me ask you whether the Jesus that you worship is the Jesus that was incarnated 2,000 years ago, the God that we found in Jesus of Nazareth. The contrast between these two Jesuses are incredible. The Jesus of our culture is a, is a prosperity theory. He's a God that promises wealth and, and health and well-being. And the Jesus of Scripture says, it's not that way. If anyone would be my disciple, that person must deny himself, forsake all, give what he has to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. I'm so glad I went to theological seminary. I'm so glad I went to theological seminary because until I did, I thought Jesus meant what he said. Well, you know, I read the 10th chapter of Mark and it said this. A young man comes to Jesus, says, what must I do that I have eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. The young man says, I observed these things from when I was a boy. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, said, one thing thou lackest, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. You see, before I went to seminary, I thought that what Jesus wanted him to do was to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. I mean, you could see how you could come to that conclusion if you didn't have a seminary education. By the time they finished with me in seminary, they said, that's what Jesus said. But what he really meant to say, don't you find that cute? All these preachers that say, Jesus was a lousy communicator. Aren't you grateful that I'm here to clarify his message? The truth is, Jesus spoke with clarity. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it will cost you everything that you are and everything that you have. Are you ready to take up the cross and follow him? We don't want that kind of Jesus. We want a Jesus that at best asks us to tithe. Why don't we change the hymn book? One-tenth to Jesus, I surrender. One-tenth to him I gladly give. Graham Kenrick will lead us in the chorus. I surrender one-tenth. I surrender one-tenth. Or in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Jesus calls us, does he not call us to come and die? To die to all that this world says is important. They didn't like that Jesus in Corinth. The Jews didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted a Jesus of their own making. The Jesus of the scripture is a radical Jesus. He comes and he calls people to follow him so that he through them might change the world that is into the world that ought to be. Please understand that. We do not follow a Jesus who is primarily interested in getting us into heaven. As I said the other day, when I was 12 years old, that's all I ever heard. Get saved, get sanctified so that you can go to heaven when you die. I'm 12 years old, I'm listening to that. The minister saying, are you ready to die? I'm 12 years old. <laughs> then there was always threat number two. You don't have to die. You could be 
left behind. <laughs> now that scared me. No matter what I wanted to do, the minister said, what if the Lord returns while you're doing it? What if you were in the movies, in the cinema, watching a film and the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns? Jeez. <laughs> Next time I went to the movies, I was scared to death. I was sure I was going to get halfway through the film and the trumpet would sound. And throughout eternity, I'd be grabbing people and saying, do you know how that thing ended, do you? Do you know how that... Jesus did not come in order to get us into the next world, even though there is a next world. And those who trust in him will have eternal life in the next world. He came to create a people through whom his will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you pray when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Come into me, Lord Jesus. Fill me, Lord Jesus. Change me, Lord Jesus. And through me and through my brothers and sisters, help us to change the world that is into the world that ought to be. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the great themes of the evangelical community for the last 50 years has been you can't change the world. The world is too evil. It cannot be changed. Hogwash. Of course it can be changed. It's about time we recognize that Henry Ford was right when he said, if you think you can or you think you can't, either way you're right. Because what you believe you can do will determine what you do. And the Bible puts it this way. Unless the young have visions and the old have dreams, the people perish. God has dreams and visions and he calls upon you to be imbued with those dreams and his visions. I went to the theater and sitting there, the woman next to me is screaming at her husband halfway through the show, I'm upset. She's saying, stop it, stop it. The musical was the man of La Mancha. The man on the stage was singing the theme song and her husband was crying. And she's saying, you're exposing yourself. You're exposing yourself. Needless to say, I lean forward. <laughs> and here was a guy with tears running down his cheeks. And I knew why he was crying because Don Quixote was singing to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to strive with the last ounce of courage, to go where the brave dare not go. And the world will be richer for this than one man bruised and covered with scars still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable star. And I knew he was crying because somewhere along the line, he lost his dreams, he lost his visions, and he was dying inside. How many people have tried to crush your dreams, tried to crush your visions, the dreams and the visions that the Holy Spirit imparted to you to do something splendid with your life, something glorious with your life? A friend of mine came down for breakfast. He was the president of the Menning Corporation, a Fortune 500 company. His wife said, well, Al, is this what you want to do with the rest of your life? He said, what? Making shaving cream and deodorants. Is that what it's about? That night at dinner, he said, that question you asked me this morning so troubled me that when I left the office today, I handed in my resignation. That slowed him down.
He started an organization called Opportunity International. I was so impressed with what he did that at the university where I teach, we started a graduate program that does nothing else except to prepare people to work for organizations like Opportunity International. And many of my graduates have gone on to work with Opportunity International. You say, what does it do? It starts small businesses and cottage industries for people in third world countries. You know, if we're going to eliminate poverty, and please, the vision of God for this world is to eliminate poverty. You cannot do it simply by giving money away. I mean, that's wonderful if you do it. You've got to do more than that. We need a generation of dreamers who are willing to go as missionaries to the third world and start small business and entrepreneurial programs that people can own and run themselves. I remember the first one we started. It was in a place called Guachapita, slum in Santo Domingo. We started this little business where we made sandals out of worn out, discarded automobile tires. We gave boys and girls in Guachapita 50 cents every time they brought us a worn out, discarded automobile tire. It wasn't long before we had every worn out, discarded automobile tire in Santa Domingo. Then we started getting a lot of new automobile tires. <laughs> Do you believe God works in strange and mysterious ways? We created jobs for 20 people through that little business. And we began to replicate that, and that's what Opportunity does worldwide, now in 43 countries. The last time we had a fundraiser, we had it in Sydney, Australia, and Wolfenson, Mr. Wolfenson from the World Bank flew in from Geneva to be our speaker, because according to the calculations of the World Bank, this little Christianary, Christian missionary organization, this little faith-based evangelical group starting businesses for the poor and the oppressed in the third world had created, are you ready for this, three and a half million jobs for poor people. Now, if you figure, if you figure there are uh, uh, five people to a family in the third world when you create three and a half million jobs, you've got to take three and a half million and multiply it by five to get some idea of how many people are delivered from poverty, not for a day, not for a week, not for a year, but for the rest of their lives. I say the day of Jubilee is at hand. The poor are getting some good news. And according to the World Bank, if we continue, this little Christian missionary organization continues on its present course by the year 2015, which isn't that far away, we will have eliminated world poverty by 10%. Just this one little faith group. We can make a difference. We can change things. A friend of mine called me many years ago, 26 years ago to be exact, and said, I've got a plan. We're going to build houses for poor people. We're going to raise some money, buy some building materials, buy some land. We're going to build the houses, and then we're going to sell the houses for poor, to poor people with no down payment, long-term mortgages, with no interest on the mortgages, because the Bible says you shouldn't charge interest of the poor. They'll be able to buy houses for less than they would be able to rent a flat. I said, it's a great idea. Who, how are you going to pay the workers? He said, we're going to get church people to volunteer, and they're going to build the houses. He said, that's right. I said, right. <laughs> Twenty-five years later, Habitat for Humanity, this organization, this Christian missionary organization, has completed around the world 215,000 houses for poor families. People, we can make a difference. We can change things.
We've listened too long to those prophets of doom that sang the world's getting worse and worse and worse. I remember when I was a kid sitting in the evening service and the minister's talking about how the divorce rate has gone up and poverty and drug addiction. And this lady sitting behind me going, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I said to my mother, what's she so happy about? She realizes that the world's getting worse and worse. I said, that's the point. Why is she happy? Well, she thinks that it gets so bad that what? Jesus has to come back. I said, that's the good news. The good news is that God is already at work in and through the church. And here's what it says in Philippians, the first chapter, the ninth verse. And the good work that he begins in us and through us, he will complete on the day of his coming. One of these days, people, Jesus is coming back. And the world that we have been trying to create will come into actualization. It's described in the book of Isaiah, the 65th chapter, starting at the 17th verse. No more, no more shall children die in infancy. I was in Africa. I saw children dying in infancy. The AIDS epidemic has rendered 13 million children orphans. I was in a village where a woman asked me to pray that her children would die before she did. I couldn't believe the statement. Why? Well, they all had AIDS. They didn't do anything wrong. The husband had brought it home and given it to her and she had had children and they were dying. And she wanted her children to die before she did because she knew what would happen if she died first. Because I have seen the children on the streets of Harare. I have seen them sleeping on the streets, orphaned because of AIDS, swelled stomachs, hair turned rust color from malnutrition. I have seen the truck go through 6.30 in the morning. And I watched the people come and shake the sleeping children on the sidewalk. And if they're dead, throw them on the truck. And the truck drives to the edge of town. And they put them in a pile and they burn them. And she didn't want her children to die like that. I understood. No more will children die in infancy. Oh, this tsunami thing was incredible. 300,000 people lost their lives in just one day. But consider this, people. Every single day, every single day, 30,000 children die of either starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. They don't make any headlines. There's no big fundraising drive for them. You are not a Christian just because you believe in Jesus. You're a Christian if Jesus has invaded your heart and mind and soul and taken possession of your being. And you will know that that has happened if your heart is broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus. Is your heart broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus? Because in the kingdom, children shall not die in infancy. All people shall live out their lives in perfect health. I like that. I'm at that age where I'm liking that. You know you're old when you go to a wedding and the bride's grandmother looks better to you than the bride. <laughs> well, you know, the bride comes down the aisle, you say, kids are getting married. And the grandmother comes down the aisle, you go, foxy lady. And you know you're slip, sliding away. But in the kingdom, 
Old people shall live out their lives in health and well-being. There shall be no suffering for the old. Everybody will have good housing. Read that 65th chapter of Isaiah. People will have good jobs. The environment will be restored. And that chapter ends with the good news for the environmentalists that are here. Neither shall they hurt the earth anymore. It's a transformed world. And that's why Jesus wants to save you. That's why he wants to cleanse you from sin. That's why he wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. So that in you and through you, he can do the work that he wants to do. He came into this world for this reason. Check the three synoptic gospels. They all begin with the words, the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to create the kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. Yesterday was Easter Sunday and we sang about the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our God. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Jesus of Scripture comes to create a people to change the world, but they, they have to be people who make a radical commitment. That's the second thing. He wants to change the world. He wants to create a people who are radically committed. I mean, Jesus spelled it out brilliantly. We in the church are afraid to tell people what's really required of them. Jesus wasn't. He preached one sermon in which he laid out the cost of discipleship. 5,000 followers in the beginning of the sermon. By the end of the sermon, they had all left him but the 12. And he turns to them and he said, how come you're still hanging around here? And Peter says, well, we'd leave too, but we don't have any place to go. Check it out. That's exactly what he says. He did not water down the cost of discipleship. Let me tell you about one of my students, Brian Stevenson. Graduated from Eastern University, top of the class. He, he, went, he went to Harvard Law School, our most prestigious law school. Graduated at the top of the class at Harvard Law. Made law review. He's African-American. How much money do you think he could be making? A half a million dollars a year? A million dollars a year with his credentials? He's living in a one-room flat in Montgomery, Alabama. And every week I send him a check in order that he might have enough money to buy food. Because he doesn't take any money for his services. This brilliant, top-of-the-scale lawyer every day goes down to the jailhouse in Montgomery, Alabama, because we still have capital punishment in our country. And he defends the people on death row. And if you ask him, don't you believe in capital punishment? He said, how can anybody believe in capital punishment when you will follow a Jesus who said, blessed are the merciful. He does say that, doesn't he? For they shall obtain mercy. How could any Christian advocate capital punishment when you follow a Jesus like that? He said, secondly, even if you did believe in capital punishment, you should be opposed to it. Because we all know there's two kinds of justice. One kind of justice for rich people and another kind of justice for poor people. And if you don't know that, you don't mow much. The rich get the lawyers to make sure that they get the good deal. He said they go to the electric chair or the gas chamber not because they're guilty, but because they're poor. Because the poor have no one really good to speak for them, to stand up for them in their day in court. And then he smiled at me and said, except in Montgomery, Alabama. Because in Montgomery, Alabama, Doc, in Montgomery, Alabama, I speak for the poor. 
I defend the poor. And then he looked at me and he said, and Doc, I'm good. I'm really good. And I thought to myself, Brian, you don't know how good you are. You rejected the allurements of a seductive society that would get you into stuff. And you are following Jesus in a radical manner. Oh, it's so easy to be seduced by the system. It's so easy to be sucked in by the system. I had a student. His name was Charlie. I had him with me in Haiti where we have a network of 95 missionary schools for, for slave children. There's a quarter of a million slave children in Haiti. We're up in the north where there's a medical center that we support. There were 300 kids lined up, one doctor, two nurses. He said, Doc, I'm going to complete my education. I'm going to come back here. I'm going to be a missionary in this very place. You wait and see, Doc. I'm going to be a missionary here. I ran into Charlie in New York not too long ago. To his credit, he did become a doctor. You know what he's doing? Cosmetic surgery. And not the kind that makes sense. You put a broken face together after an automobile accident. That makes sense. Oh, no. He's doing the kind of cosmetic surgery that caters to a sexist culture that evaluates women by the shape of their breasts. You know what he's doing. Implants. And he told me that he was giving to the church. And he went to church. And he was serving on committees. And he went on and on. And finally I said, Charlie, stop. Stop. You're upsetting me, Charlie. You're upsetting me. Charlie, you had a dream. You had a vision. You were going to do something wonderful, brilliant, miraculous with your life. And look at you, Charlie. Look at you. Look at what you've become. You sold out the dream. You sold out the vision for what? For what? So you could have a jacuzzi and a Porsche. You're a sellout, Charlie. Dress it up any way you want. You are a sellout. You say you're going hard on him. Not any harder than Jesus was on the rich young ruler. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to do the radical things that Jesus calls you to do? To give what you have to meet the needs of the uh, those who are oppressed, who are poor? I don't know how many of you are supporting a child through World Vision or Compassion International, but you should. For no other reason than that you should have a kid standing next to you on Judgment Day. So when the Lord says, I was hungry, did you feed me? Naked, did you clothe me? Sick, did you visit me? You know, you can hit the kid and say... <laughs> because if there is such a child on that day, the Lord will say, enter ye into the kingdom. For inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. I ask you, how seriously do you take the Jesus who calls you to this kind of sacrificial lifestyle? It says in 1 John 3, 17, if you have this world's goods and you know of brothers and sisters who are in need and you keep what you have while they suffer, how can you say, I have the love of God in my heart? How can you say that? How can you say that? You say, you're, you're really making me feel guilty. Guilt is a healthy reaction to sin. And it's about time that those of us who have bought into the affluent middle-class lifestyle begin to feel a little guilt in light of the fact that if we live more simply, we could use our resources to help the poor and the oppressed of the world. Amen?
And we are called to be radically committed to the oppressed. I remember when I was in high school, there was this boy who was a homosexual. He was gay. Large, tough inner city high school, West Philadelphia High. And they picked on him, and I picked on him, and we all picked on him. On Fridays after physical education class, we all went into the gym to shower, except for, 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 for Roger. He was afraid to go in. And when he did go in, and we waited for him to come out. We had our wet towels ready, and when he came out, we'd whip them and sting his little body. I wasn't there the day they grabbed Roger, dragged him into that shower room, shoved him into the corner. And while he cried and begged for help, I wasn't there when it happened. He went home, and that night he went to bed about 10 o'clock. And they said it was about 2 o'clock in the morning when he got up and went to the basement of his house. And he hung himself. And I knew I wasn't a Christian. Oh, I believed the right stuff. I was theologically orthodox. But if I had had Christ in my life, I would have been Roger's friend. Because Jesus was the friend of people who the church rejected. I would have been his friend. And when they came to pick on him, I would have put my arm around him if I was a Christian and said, Lay off of my friend, you church people. He's my buddy. But I was afraid to make him my friend. Because in a tough inner city school, if you become friends with a gay kid like Roger, it's not long before they're talking about you. And I didn't want them to talk about me. Oh, I wish I could go back and be Roger's friend so that on that day when I stand before the Lord, he will say, blessed are ye when they reviled you and persecuted you and said all kinds of evil things against you falsely because you love the wrong people. If the church isn't about loving the wrong people, I don't know what it's about. It's not the church that Jesus came to create. We don't like the Jesus who is the real one. We want one who comes with our racism and our homophobic attitudes and our anti-feminine attitudes. We want that, we want to, we, we want that Jesus in its place. But the biblical Jesus will have none of it. He will not put up with the God that we have created in our own image. Paul says this in the first chapter of Romans, does he not? When he says they take the image of the incorruptible God, they transform him into an image like an incorruptible man, four-footed beast, birds of the air. And here's what Paul says in Romans the first chapter, and they end up worshiping the creature instead of the creator. We've gotten rid of the creator Jesus and created a Jesus in his place that embodies our prejudices and our, our attitudes and our values. And, and the real Jesus almost gets lost in the process. I call upon you to be sacrificial. Let me throw out a suggestion to you. If you're between the ages of 18 and 30, and you can do this, I would love for you to come and give me your name and address after this is over so I can write to you and try to lure you into giving a year of your life into missionary service in some of the worst slums in American cities. Oasis has a program like that. There are other ministries here that have programs like that. Mine is a very simple one. We call it Mission Year. If you're really meaning business, you say, but I'm on the fast track to being a lawyer. Live among the poor for a year. You'll be a different kind of lawyer. 
I'm going to be a teacher. You'll be a different kind of teacher. I'm going to be a doctor. You'll be a different kind of doctor. Living among the beaten down peoples of the world and ministering to them for a year will change your heart and mind and soul so radically that your whole orientation will be transformed. Let Christ speak to you through the poor and the oppressed. You say, I don't get it. Poor and oppressed? Oh, yes. He's always waiting to be encountered there. I'm walking down, I'm walking down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia and this bum is walking towards me. A filthy, dirty, schizophrenic bum. He's got this huge beard hanging out in all kinds of directions. Rotted food stuck in the beard. He's holding in his hands a cup of McDonald's coffee. He spots me. He says, hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I looked at this filthy man and his dirty beard and the smudged cup. I didn't want any of his coffee. But I knew the right thing to do was to affirm his generosity. So I took the cup. I took a sip. I gave it back to him. I said, hey, fella. You're getting generous, aren't you? Giving away your coffee to people you don't even understand and know. You don't know me. You're giving away your coffee to strangers. What's gotten into you? He said, well, the coffee today was especially delicious. And I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> this guy's going to cost me $10. I said, you want something from me in return, don't you? He said, yeah, yeah, I want something from you. I want a hug. I was hoping for the $10. <laughs> he put his arms around me. I put my arms around him, and then I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. He's holding on from behind. People are passing on the street. They're staring at me. I'm embarrassed. But little by little... The embarrassment turned to awe. The embarrassment turned to reverence. And I could hear that voice echoing down the corridors of time that said, I was hungry. Did you feed me naked? Did you clothe me sick? Did you care for me? I was the bum you met on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Yes, I'm telling you, come and be with us and work with us in ministry uh, for a year. Be among these beaten down, poor, downtrodden folks and you will be transformed because Jesus will mystically present himself to you through them. He will come to you through them. That's what St. Francis of Assisi was telling us when he said the poor and the oppressed are sacramental. Now when I said sacramental, all the Catholics here got happy because you're into sacraments. Catholics believe in Holy Communion, the bread becomes the flesh of Jesus, and the wine becomes the blood of Jesus, literally. At the other end of the line are people like me. We're Baptists. We believe that in Holy Communion, the bread stays bread. And the wine is turned into grape juice. That's Baptist theology. In the middle are the Lutherans and the Anglicans, and they believe that the bread stays bread and the wine stays wine. But in and through the elements comes the real presence of Jesus. Are you ready to meet Jesus in the poor and the oppressed? It's not the Jesus that we want to embrace. We want the one that comes in majesty and glory. The Jews didn't like the real Jesus. The real Jesus mystically presents himself to us in the poor and the oppressed. And he bids us love him there. Can you give me a year? Can you give me a year? Let me ask you another one. Can you give me a summer? We'll take you for just a summer. 
If you can get to the United States, it won't cost you anything if you come for the summer. We'll take care of your room and board such as it is. Got two of my colleagues down here on the front row. They'll see you when this thing's over, and you tell them, I'll give a year, I'll give six months. They, they're right over here. They'll talk to you. They'll be facing outward, and they'll, they'll talk to you. However, there's one thing more that needs to be said, and that is that none of this is going to happen unless the Holy Spirit becomes a living presence in your life. I grew up Protestant, and Protestants really don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. I end up reading off a list of non-negotiable demands to the Almighty. <laughs> telling God a lot of stuff God already knows. Dear Lord, Sister Mary is sick in the hospital. What do you think God's saying? Whoa. <laughs> I didn't know that. Which hospital? He knows what you have need of before you even ask. But in the morning when I get up, I lie in bed in absolute stillness, and I don't say anything to God. I just center down on Jesus. I say his name over and over again, because it's the only way I know to drive back the animals, the animals being the 101 things that come in to consume my consciousness. I have to drive them back and create what the Celtic Christians call the thin place. An atmosphere where there's nothing save the presence of the Lord, and in the stillness and in the quietude of the morning, I wait for the Spirit to invade my being, to flow into my being, to penetrate my personhood. Hey, people, let me ask you, when was the last time you gave the Holy Spirit, you gave Jesus, you gave the Father, 15 minutes of stillness? You say, well, I pray a lot. Oh, there's too many words out there. When I was a pastor, and I was a pastor, I didn't hack it very well, but I tried. My problem was that I couldn't resist a good one-liner. And it was particularly bad when I got to praying because it's hard to pray and, and, and make sure that the words the people are hearing are the right words and, and being connected to God at the same time. You, you get all confused. And every once in a while I'd forget the people and just connect with God. And I remember a lady coming out of church saying, Do you know how many grammatical errors you made in the prayer this morning? Before I could catch myself, I said, I wasn't talking to It's not the sort of thing that builds koinonia. <laughs> but when you pray, says Jesus, go into the closet and shut the door. Get rid of all the distractions. Center down in quietude and in darkness and in stillness and wait. Wait in silence. Wait for the spirit that is all around you. The Christ who is with you. The God who is present to invade you, to surrender to that presence. There are some who get the Holy Spirit of Pentecostal meeting and praise God for that. But for those who need to go to the quiet place, I say go to the quiet place. For the scripture says, be still and know that I am God. They who wait, did you get the word wait upon the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like eagles and fly. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then the next verse, for in silence he will come to you. In the stillness of the morning, I surrender. And I feel Jesus reaching out from the cross, across time and space. I feel Jesus connecting with me. And like a sponge, absorbing out of me all the dark and ugly dimensions of my humanity. The dark side of my personhood is absorbed into his body. Like he was a magnet, and my sin or iron filings, they fly out of me and into his precious body. 
You say, wait a minute, there's 2,000 years separating you on the cross, you here and now, and Jesus on the cross back there. Ah. But Einstein's theory of relativity tells us this. The time is relative to motion. The faster we travel, the more time is compressed. The faster we travel, the more time is compressed. Until at the speed of light, all of time, from the alpha to the omega, beginning and the end, are pressed into what Emil Brunner called an eternal now. Everything is now for God. That's why it could be said a thousand years is a day, the day is a thousand years. Jesus could say, I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He could say, before Abraham was, I am. He's talking about something thousands of years earlier. And he says, it's present tense for me. Before Abraham was, I am. And I want to tell you this, that the same Jesus who died on the cross is the eternally crucified because at the speed of light, and I believe Jesus is God, and because he's God, he experiences all of time. He can experience all of time as an eternal now, which means as he hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was and he is simultaneous with you here tonight. And if you will let him, if you will surrender, he will reach out from Calvary and he will touch you. I know you believe in the forgiveness of sins because you recite the creed. But you need more than forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 reads, If we will confess our sins, He is faithful, He is just, He will forgive us, and He will what? Cleanse us. Don't you need a cleansing tonight? Don't you need a cleansing? Don't you need for Jesus to reach out and touch you and absorb out of you everything that is dirty and dark and ugly? You can name the filth in your life that needs to be removed. The jealousies, the hatreds, the resentments, the lust, the pornography. I don't know what it is, but you know that you need cleansing. Jesus wants to reach out from Calvary and cleanse you because the Holy Spirit isn't going to explode inside of you until you're cleansed. If you think there's a shortcut to the Holy Spirit, you are mistaken. You've got to get cleansed. And it's the cleansed temple because it's a Holy Spirit and Holy Spirits only dwell in cleanse temples. I want you to sign up for a year. I want you to sign up for a summer if you can't do a year. I want you to look for places to serve in your neighborhood, in your community. I want you to make radical commitments. I want you to set aside the culturally created deity and embrace the biblical Christ. And that's what it's about. And that's what this meeting is about. And I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Not do you believe in Jesus. I didn't come here to make believers out of anybody. There's a spring harvest. Believers show up. <laughs> Believing in Jesus is not the name of the game, people. If it was, Satan would be saved. Because the Bible says Satan believes and trembles, doesn't it? I'm not asking you to be a believer. I'm asking, are you ready to become a disciple? Isn't there a difference between a believer and a disciple? A disciple is somebody who says, Master, I'm yours. Cleanse me. Fill me. Use me. I commit myself to you. No reservations. All that I have, all that I am is yours. I'll make the changes that need to be changed. I want to live out the dream. I want to live out the vision. I want to do what Jesus wants you to do, me to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go overseas. You can be a missionary right 
where you live. There's a teacher friend of mine named Jean Thompson. She had a boy in her class that she didn't like. His name was Teddy Stollard, and you wouldn't like him either. He was a singularly unattractive boy. He sat slouched in his seat. He never paid attention. When she spoke to him, he answered in monosyllables. When she marked Teddy's paper, she got a perverse delight out of putting X's next to the wrong answers. And when she put the F at the top of the paper, she always did it with a flair. And she should have known better because teachers have records. First grade. Teddy is a good boy. He shows promise and work and attitude. But poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy works hard, but he is too serious for a second grader. His mother is terminally ill. Third grade, Teddy is becoming withdrawn and detached. His mother died this year. His father shows no interest. Fourth grade, Teddy is a troubled child. He needs help. She had records. She should have known. Christmas came. They brought their presents. They were all in brightly colored paper, except for Teddy's present. His was wrapped in brown paper and held together with scotch tape. But to tell the truth, she was surprised he even brought her his present. When she tore open the paper, out fell a rhinestone bracelet with most of the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume that was almost empty. She put the bracelet on, the beat-up bracelet. She took some perfume out of the endless empty bottle, put it on her wrist, held it up and said, isn't it lovely, isn't it lovely? Taking the cue from the teacher, they all agreed. At the end of the day, when all the other students had left, Teddy came over to the desk and he said softly, Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, all day today, you smelled just like my mother. That's her bracelet. It looks very nice on you. I'm glad you like my presence. And when he left, she got down on her knees and cried and asked God to forgive her and surrendered her life to Christ. And the next day, they didn't come into a classroom. They came into an outpost of the kingdom of God, for it was a place where God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And she nurtured kids who were having trouble. She was totally committed to Christ and what she was doing. By the end of that school year, Teddy had caught up with a lot of children. He was even ahead of some. She didn't hear from Teddy for a long time, and then there was a note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I'm graduating from high school. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm second in my class. The university has not been easy, but I really liked it. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore J. Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm going to be married the 27th of July, to be exact. I want you to come, and I want you to sit where my mother would have sat. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. And she went and she sat where the mother would have sat. She deserved to be there. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I don't know where you want to place me, in a classroom, in a garage, doing mechanic work, an office, I don't know, but wherever you want me to go, I will go. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. Whatever you want me to be, I will be. Cleanse me. Cleanse me tonight. I reach out to you. You reach out to me. Invade me. Absorb out of me the dirt and the darkness of my life. And cleanse me and then fill me and then use me. I don't want to follow a cultural Jesus. I want to follow the living Jesus Christ of history. I want to follow you, Lord. I want to follow you. Bow your heads and pray with me.
With their heads bowed and eyes closed, I ask a very simple question. You came here a believer, but you know you need to be cleansed. You know you need to be filled. You know you have to be used by God in ways that you haven't been willing to be used. You've let the dream die and you've let the vision pass. And it's time for renewal, people. Or maybe it's time for the first time decision. Maybe you've never given your life over to Christ. You believe in him, but you never gave him your life. You've never said, Lord, I've never let you cleanse me, fill me, change me, use me the way you want. I want you to be in my life tonight. I want to be alive. I want to be excited. I want to be filled with the dynamism of the spirit. I want you in me now. And I'm only going to ask it once. Because you don't have to plead if the Holy Spirit is already pleading. And I'm only asking if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now and saying, it's time to stop playing at this thing. It's time to let Jesus cleanse you and change you and fill you. Are you willing to be changed? Are you willing to be changed? Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to make pay the price? Are you willing to pay the price? Do you want God alive in you, radiating through you? Do you want your life to count for something? If you'll make a commitment tonight and say, I'll cross the line tonight. I will become a disciple tonight. I'll take the first steps. It's a long journey, but I'm going to take the first step tonight. And the first step is going to be with raising my hand. And I'm going to do it when I'm asked to do it. Because I want the Lord to see my hand in the air. Would you, if you'll commit yourself to Christ right now without reservation, would you lift your hand right now? Lift it high. Lift it high. Lift it high. God bless you. All over this place, hands are going up. And people are saying, here am I, Lord. Take me. Use me. Change me. Transform me. You can put your hands down. There are two things I'm going to ask. First of all, when this thing's over, there'll be some team members up here in the front. And if, and not if, you should come up and pray with somebody. I'm not going to drag you up front right now, but you can come up and pray with people here who are waiting to pray for you and with you. You, you, you need that. Secondly, there's a prayer tent somewhere. and When they close out the meeting, you'll tell them where the prayer tent is. If you don't come up, please go to the prayer tent. Don't let this moment pass. Don't just walk out of here as though nothing happened. If you raise your hand, something happened. Because I want to tell you people, it is an ugly thing to lie to Jesus. If you raise your hand, you said, I'm yours. I'm serious about this. And serious people follow through. And if you're going to follow through, you're going to come up here and you're going to go to the prayer tent. And you're going to make your commitment known. And once again... If you want to work as a missionary for a year, you say, why a year? Because I want you to go back to your home church with the vision and the dreams that you picked up there. And if you can give us a summer, give us a summer. My friend Biju will be up here and his friend Jessica will be with him. God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give unto you his peace.